Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's great to be with you today. My name's Lawson, the lead pastor here at City Reach Marion. Lovely to be in this new building. We give thanks to God for all of it. In a previous life, I was a gardener. You might not imagine it, but I used to roll my sleeves up a bit more than this, get out there and pull the weeds out of the garden. And as I did so, I realized that there are several ineffective methods for weeding. You might have noticed the weeds out the front of the building. If anyone would like to rip them out after this, you are very welcome to do so. It serves as a good illustration for me today. There are two ineffective methods for weeding. The first one is to ignore them. Not going to work. Your garden will be overcome with weeds. And I have tried that method myself in my own house. And I can tell you, they do not go away. They just grow bigger and larger. The other ineffective method, which you may not know, is that just ripping them out without getting the roots out also does not work. If the roots are still in, the weeds will just come back at a later time. They can be very annoying. But there is an effective method, of course. Not to ignore them, not to just rip the top off, but to pull them out all the way so the weeds come out also. If you want a garden without weeds, you have to remove the roots. And this morning we look at a text where Jesus deals with doubt. Jesus deals with doubt amongst someone who should have been one of his greatest followers, his cousin John the Baptist. Yet even John was doubting at this time. And so to deal with doubt, we can't just ignore our doubts and we can't just pull them out ineffectively. We must deal with the root of them. We can't just give them platitudes like just believe as I drive past a certain building that says you must just believe. That does not work. We must deal with them at their root. A guy called Oz Guinness says this, in his book on doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief, so that it is neither of them wholly, and it is only each of them partly. Doubt does not necessarily or automatically mean the end of faith, for doubt is faith in two minds. What destroys faith is that disobedience that hardens into unbelief. And so as Jesus deals with doubt in this text, I want to help us to deal with doubt in our own lives today. The first type of doubt I want to help you to deal with today is the doubt that comes from life circumstances. Because we often fall into doubt because of life circumstances. You'll notice that John, the one who should have had Jesus back the most out of everyone, He'd seen Jesus baptized. He'd seen the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus. He'd heard the Father announce from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And what did happen to John? He doubted whether this was really the one who was to come. But I want you to notice something. Verse 2, John was in prison. John had gotten on the bad side of some of the governors and leaders of the region. And so they'd thrown him into prison because John was a bit of a hellfire and brimstone preacher. John told it like it is and didn't mince his words. 
and people didn't like that. And when he told the governor that he shouldn't have uh, taken another man's wife, they threw him into prison. And so John was dealing with his own life circumstances, which were difficult. And prisons back then, I can tell you, were not nice. And so his life circumstances led him into doubt. John sends some of his own disciples to ask Jesus, are you really who we thought you were? Are you really the one who we've been waiting for? And I think it's similar for us. If we uh, go into difficult life circumstances, be it suffering, be it losing someone we love, be it financial hardship, be it not getting the things that we'd hoped for in our lives, these circumstances can lead us into doubt. So the question before us is, are we like John, in a bit of doubt because of our life circumstances. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus says to John and his disciples, go and tell John what you see and hear. Jesus calls us to consider his miracles afresh. Verse 5, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus recounts what's been happening in the previous chapters, chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus has been doing things for the whole world to see, things that no one else has ever done before. And the people knew it. But what does he do? He calls to mind his miraculous deeds again. See, John had heard of the deeds, but doubt had gotten in because of his life circumstances. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus is the wise, loving God, the good shepherd who cares for his people, the one who loves John, calls John and his disciples to consider his miracles afresh. And that is what we need when we face doubt in our lives because of our circumstances. We need to consider the work of Jesus afresh. Part of that comes from listening to God's word and going, what do these things mean for us? Because the physical signs that Jesus performed, the miracles that he did were to point to something. Not that just Jesus had great power or that Jesus was a good man who cared for people, but that Jesus is the good and loving God that you know of, but at the moment you've forgotten. He's the one who looks after his people, even in their hardship, even in their despair, even when they're doubting. He is the one who raises the dead. This spiritual reality is what the signs point to. And so if, when we doubt, we are reminded of his deeds, we can then come to trust the goodness of God and believe in his power. And then our doubts will lose their power over us. Ultimately, what doubts are, are they are losing trust in the power of God's goodness. And so what do we need to do? We need to turn and look upon his deeds again 
come out of doubt. In verse 6, we see an encouragement for those who are struggling with doubt. And it's amazing that Jesus doesn't just say, John, you should have known better. You are my cousin. You saw that I am the Son of God. You heard my Father proclaim over me. You saw the Holy Spirit descend upon me. You should have known better. No, he doesn't say that. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In the book of Jude, it tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. And so if you are struggling with doubt today, for whatever reason, for whatever circumstances your life has, and even if you're not now, you may well do in the future, because life has many and very difficult circumstances. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offended is the word that Matthew often uses in the original language for those who fall away. And Jesus says, you'll be blessed if you persevere with me. You see, doubt may lead some to fall away and to show their true colors that they never really believed in the first place. But there is an alternative. That there is a blessing for those who would turn back to God even in seasons of doubt and difficulty. There is a blessing for those who are experiencing seasons of suffering and hardship and who come under the dark shadow of doubt that if you stick with him, he will stick with you because he will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the God that remains faithful even if we are faithless. He is the God that uses these trials and seasons of difficulty to work good in our lives and to grow our patience and trust in Him and to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a wonderful example of this. You may have heard of Doubting Thomas. It's a terrible name. You, like, it's not in the Bible, but you'd feel pretty bad if you were Thomas and you've got labelled Doubting Thomas. But it happens, actually, after Jesus resurrection all the other disciples aren't willing to say they don't believe except for Thomas he's the guy who puts his hand up and says I don't believe it I don't believe that he rose from the dead and so Thomas is a bit of a loud mouth I think and Thomas says I will never believe unless I touch the wounds in his hands and I put my hand into his side where the spear was pretty bold claim for Thomas and so then when Jesus does appear to Thomas and says to him Thomas touch my hands see the scars Thomas touch my side see the wound what does Thomas do he says my Lord and my God he didn't even need to touch them his skepticism failed him at that moment his doubts gave up because Jesus himself came to him in mercy and said, here I am. Here I am. Now you might think that Thomas didn't do much after that. Sort of just didn't get written into much of the Bible after that. They thought, well, this guy, a bit of a doubter, so we won't write him into the rest of the Bible. But as it happens, uh, there's 
pretty good evidence to say that around 50 AD, Thomas got on a boat, probably several boats, and travelled to India and started planting churches in the furthest place away he could imagine. And those churches still stand there to this day, named after St. Thomas, not Doubting Thomas. And what this proves to us, and this, they only discovered this because when uh, people from the West, who where Christianity had eventually gotten to, people from Spain and other places, eventually decided to take the gospel to India, they realized there were already churches there named after Thomas. And they're like, how did that happen? What this tells us is that even those who doubt, which there's probably many of us, God can still use for his great glory in ways you couldn't even imagine, in ways that may not be proclaimed in this age but may stand for generations. Many faithful people have struggled with doubt and so you can be encouraged that blessed is the one who is not offended. Jesus. The second type of doubt I want to deal with this morning is this, the sort of doubt that comes from unmet expectations. Michael Patton uh, in a blog talks about two types of doubters. He says, the first are walking away from God and believe they're finding freedom. The second feel they're walking away from their faith and are deeply disturbed about it. The difference with the second is that they are always facing God, crying out with arms outstretched to Him for help. Thankfully, in most cases, these doubters eventually return to the faith. Here, in the next part of the text, Jesus deals with the first kind of doubter, those that think they're finding freedom apart from Him. In verses 16 to 19, Jesus uses this interesting illustration. He talks about people playing instruments at festive occasions. So when you play the flute, you're supposed to dance, maybe at a funeral. And when you sing the dirge, you're supposed to... Sorry, let me get that right. When you play the flute, you're supposed to dance at perhaps a wedding. Let's get that one right. You don't dance at funerals, at least I haven't been to one where they dance, but... Maybe they do in some places. But when you sing the dirge, you did not mourn. People are expecting that Jesus would follow to the tune of what they want in their lives. And when their expectations are not met, which Jesus is saying that's what happens here, and they get disappointed and they fall into doubt. Jesus then, in verse 16, he says, that this is a generational problem. But to what shall I compare this generation? They're the ones that, don't, that ask Jesus to play to the tune of their song. And when he doesn't, they get upset with him. Is that what this generation does? Do we get upset when Jesus doesn't do what we want him to do? He's not quite what we expected. He's got too many rules for us. And his love comes with too much sacrifice. We'll look at that in a minute. But Jesus in this text actually is referring to his ministry and to John's ministry. We see a little bit later in verse 18 
that they got upset with John because he was too stern a prophet. He didn't drink. He, didn't, he only ate locusts and honey, wild honey. He wore clothes of camel's hair. He was a bit of an out there kind of character. And they didn't like him. They didn't like his call for justice. In fact, John was in prison because he'd been calling for justice. And yet when it came to Jesus' ministry, they didn't like him either. Though Jesus was the, clearly shown that he's also the God of mercy and he would eat with tax collectors and sinners, they didn't like that either. They said, oh, Jesus, you're too liberal. You spend too much time with the wrong kind of people. And John, you're too strong. Your justice is too much for us. We can't handle it. They wanted a Messiah who did what they wanted. They wanted to puppeteer their Messiah. But the problem is, and Jesus points out the real issue here, they couldn't really decide what they wanted. Did they want the God of mercy? The one who upholds the weak and forgives sinners, like Jesus did? Did they want the God of justice? The one who deals with evil and rules perfectly, like John proclaimed? And so this tells us something in our hearts is that we don't really know what we want. We struggle to decide. We want justice. Oh gee, we want justice in this world. It's everywhere at the moment. A cry for justice for many different and many valid reasons. And yet, we don't like people telling us what to do that we might have that justice. We have a spirit of independence in the midst of us wanting things to be set right. We want things to be better as long as we don't get more rules. On the other hand, we want mercy. We want people to love one another and care about one another as long as we don't have to bear any cost for it. We want love to be the ruling paradigm in our world as long as there's no sacrifice that comes with it. It's a strange thing because we realize that true love and true justice always come with rules and they always come with sacrifice. I've heard it uh, explained in terms of dieting. Everybody knows that you can't get healthy and feel good about your body and uh, live a, a long healthy life unless you are disciplined and work hard and exercise and make sure that you limit your freedoms in terms of what you eat and we all realize that those kinds of sacrifices that need to be made are out of love not just for our own body but for others too that we might stick around a bit longer but they cost one of the problems that we have when it comes to not really knowing what we want. Underneath it, there's a skeptical heart. We don't trust underneath it all that God has our best intentions at heart. Some of us are skeptical by nature. We tend to second guess and question everything. It's interesting, I was looking into this idea of skepticism and the, the Greek school of skepticism out of Greek philosophy comes from a guy called Pyro. And Pyro is not a pyromaniac, if you're wondering. Pyro was a guy who was kicking around with Alexander the Great. 
back in the 4th century BC, I think. And he had this goal that if he questioned everything, then he would eventually arrive at this place of serenity, a calmness of soul. So he questioned reality. He questioned whether the floor he really walked on was the floor. He questioned whether the words that he heard from other people were really the words that he heard from other people or just a figment of his imagination. And, and as his goal was this calmness of soul, he became a very, very anxious man, as you can imagine. In fact, he was so confused in his mind that his friends had to go accompany him on walks so he didn't just walk off a cliff because he couldn't decide whether the cliff was real or not. The problem with skepticism, for skepticism's sake, is it has no end. Its fruit is not good. So we doubt because we don't get what we want. And we oscillate between one thing or the other. But Jesus knows what we need. And his word to us is that we need good news. We need a God who is not just all about the rules and not mercy. And we need a God who is merciful and cares for us and loves us at great cost and sacrifice to him. And Jesus will show us in the Bible that he is the God of both justice and mercy. And this really culminates as we get to the end of Matthew's gospel when we see the cross. The cross was a mark where people would be tortured and killed. That they would bear the justice of the state by being put up on this wooden cross. And yet Jesus went there willingly because he knew that the sins of humanity would require his blood to be paid for. Otherwise, we would pay for it ourselves. And so showing and demonstrating that he is the God of justice, Jesus went to the cross so that it could be paid in full. So that all of us who desire that there would be justice in this world, that those who are oppressed would have their day of recompense, that we who've been oppressed, we who've been wronged, that God would set it right, that we see evidence of that on a cross, that he was willing to go there, to deal with it once and for all. But we see in that same moment the love and mercy of God because he paid it for others, not himself. You see, Jesus never sinned. The Bible's emphatic about it. And so if he wasn't paying for his own sin, whose sin was he paying for? The sins of the world. The sins of all those who would believe in him. And so when Jesus went upon that cross, we see the God of mercy and the God of justice together. Love with great sacrifice, justice, and all at his own hands that he would pay it for us. This reminds us that we need to not just hear the good news, but we need to inhabit the message. Jesus says in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How often have we heard these words before? Some of us have been at church a very long time. 
We've been coming to services for a very long time. We've been sitting down and hearing these words over and over again. And yet we've missed the message of them. Our doubt has gotten in that we don't think it really matters that much. There are a few things that deafen our ears to what's really important. The first is being deafened by listening to popular opinion. We think the most important things are what they're saying out there. What we read in the newspapers, what we receive on social media, and the varied opinions that are around in the world. And if we keep up to date on these opinions, then we'll really know what's going on. And yet we're crowding out often the most important thing of all, the words of hope and truth that come from Jesus himself. We're deafened by listening to popular opinion. Secondly, we can be deafened by our own skepticism. Didn't work out very well for Pyro. One thing I've heard about this is that skeptics need to be a bit more skeptical of their skepticism. Can you say that quickly? Skeptics need to be a bit more skeptical of their skepticism. Or doubt your doubts. It's actually an encouraging way to think about it. Often we have doubts, maybe about the Christian faith, maybe about what God's doing in our life. And have we ever thought that our doubts are doubtable? That perhaps those doubts that we have, we need to rethink them themselves. Because there may well be more to this. The third thing that can deafen us to the good news of Jesus is our sin. You see, sin can lead to greater doubt because subconsciously we just want to keep doing the things we want to do. We want to stay in a place of not trusting God's goodness because we're getting what we want ourselves. When we take matters into our own hands, when we ignore God and we end up in a place of doubt, you shouldn't be surprised. But actually, when we turn in repentance to God, that our sins, our, our doubt because of our sins will fall away. And so that is how we deal with doubt from unmet expectations. And finally, I want to tell you how to move from doubt to belief. And firstly, I want to tell you that you shouldn't miss your moment. There's a guy called Joe Green, who was an undergraduate at Harvard back in 2003. And he was helping his friend write code for a website to compare the girls on campus. The friend then offered him a chance to go into business together. And Joe said, no thanks, not interested. Turns out that was a bad choice. His friend's name was Mark Zuckerberg. And the network he went on to found Facebook is now worth billions upon billions of dollars. You see, Joe Green missed his moment. And so don't miss your moment. Jesus talks about cities that he'd visited and preached and done miracles there. And they didn't realize that that was their moment. And Jesus points out a number of other cities who on the scale of worldliness or sinfulness or licentiousness, if you use a few big words, were just party cities in the world. If they'd had the good deeds that Jesus did there, then they would have turned and repented. Even the city of Sodom, which came under the 
judgment of God in the Old Testament, even if they had had the deeds done there that Jesus did, they would have repented. But no, so many people missed their moment. One thing that doubt can do is it can help us to waste our lives. Because we can always stay in a place of, I'm not really sure. And we can stay in that for a very, very long time. All the while, Jesus is saying, come. Jesus is saying, consider my deeds. Jesus is saying, hear my good news. But don't just leave it there. Don't just leave it as good deeds done a long time ago. Don't just leave it as good news proclaimed a long time ago, but see it for what it truly is, the spiritual reality that Jesus is not dead but alive. Jesus is ascended into heaven. And Jesus is calling you by the Holy Spirit to turn to Him. Give your life to Him. Because without a shadow of a doubt, He is God. And He will not waste your life one little bit. We don't miss our moment. We should grasp the truth by faith. Tim Keller uses this great illustration. He talks about someone who's about to fall off a cliff and they spot a branch and they're looking at the branch and they realize that if they grab that branch, because the branch looks nice and strong, they'll survive. And they've observed the branch in that split second. They've decided that if they truly reach out and grab it, that they won't fall to peril. And yet unless they reach out and grab it, nothing will happen. The second person, same situation. They're about to fall off a cliff. They see the branch in a split second. They're not sure if that branch will save them. Looks a bit weak and flimsy, that branch does. But instead of trusting their doubts, they reach out and grab the branch what does this tell us this tells us that even with small faith that reaches out and grabs hold of the good news of Jesus that believes what the deeds point to that he is a good and loving God who will take care of your needs that he is the God of justice and the God of mercy if you reach out and grab it even with small faith even with doubts then you will be saved But if you know all those things and you never reach out and grab it, then you will not be saved. And that is why Jesus is so stern with the cities that have seen his good works. They've heard his good news and they've done nothing about it in their lives. Also to help us to move from doubt to belief is the grace of Jesus to John the Baptist. John started off well, but it seems like he's not finishing that well. Jesus would have been well within his rights to say, John, you're done. I'm finished with you. I'm going to stick with people who will believe in me. And yet, what does he do? Jesus honours John. After John's disciples go back and report that, yes, this truly is the Messiah, he is the one, that we should believe in. What does Jesus do? He goes on to honour 
John. To say there's no one greater than John that's been born in this world. You see, Jesus knew John's doubts. He knew that he was in prison and he loved him. And he loved him. This tells us that God knows us. He knows where we're at. He knows our doubts and he loves us. And so he extends his hands of grace to us. Even Jesus wrestled with doubt for a moment. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, doubt was trying to come upon him pretty strong. And yet what did Jesus do? He endured it. And he endured it to the end for doubters like John. Jesus said to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was willing to go through doubt, to persevere through doubt, to save doubting people like John. He trusted the will of the Father and he gave himself to save the least of these, to save doubting people like you and me. And so finally, this tells us of the grace of Jesus for people like us. Because Jesus says in verse 11 that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. You see, if John was so great and even he doubted, then if you and I doubt, Jesus can still have a place for us in his kingdom. A seat at the table and a life that won't be wasted. But don't let your doubts rule you. As you consider his deeds, as you rehear his message, remember that this is the God who went to the end, went to death for doubters, to save them from their doubts, not becoming like Pyro and losing all substance of reality, but being someone who can live life full, knowing the love of God and being assured of it in their hearts. And so you and I are called today to turn back to this one who cares for us, to consider not missing our moment, to trust that if he has done it, that if he truly rose from the dead, then that can be enough. And you can settle your doubts on that matter. That you too, like Thomas did, can cry out, my Lord and my God, and grab that branch with even a little faith, and that would be enough. And so as I invite the band to come forward, I'm going to pray and ask that God would do these things in our hearts that I've spoken of today. Father God, we thank you for your words of grace and your words of truth. Help us not to miss our moment. Help us not to get consumed with skepticism. Help us not to live in light of our doubts, but rather live in light of you, the God who rose from the dead, who conquered sin, who went to the cross for us, and who was willing at the cost of his own life to save us from our doubts. We praise you and give you thanks in Jesus' name.